So listening to teachings is its own kind of meditation. You don't have to take notes, and as I always say, there's no quiz afterward. It's more letting yourself sit quietly and listen to notice what resonates within you as being true. And if it doesn't, and it seems extraneous or not useful or not right, then just let it go. But if it's a reminder to your heart, to your conscience, to your wisdom, um, then that's a benefit. And over the course of this year, I've been offering a series of talks on the ten qualities of Buddha nature, these beautiful qualities that is born in every one of us and can be remembered and awakened in us. And so we've talked about generosity and integrity and patience and wisdom and compassion and so forth. Um, And tonight uh, is a bit more demanding one. Usually I do these kind of, oh, you know, heart-opening, compassion ones. Tonight... (laughs) More demanding is the paramita, the perfection or the inner um, awakening of truthfulness. Um, And as we start, I also want to acknowledge Texas and the hurricane and all the people who are flooded out and who are in shelters or not in shelters yet and saying, help, you know, I'm on my roof for the second floor and Um, But one of the things that's really beautiful, even in such a great difficulty, um, because we tend to focus on the difficulty, is to look at all the hundreds and thousands of people who are going to help. That when something difficult happens, there's people that rush in from all sides with their boats, with food, with care, with whatever they can offer, the rescuers and the and the helpers, and to see that each time there is tragedy is also really an important thing in our vision. So we don't only focus, we have this negativity bias in the kind of the way our brain is designed to you know, look out for the dangers first, because that's the survival part, and we don't see this whole magnificent outpouring almost always of heart and care. So to see that and of course, it's also Burning Man Week for some, some of you. <laughs> this is sort of a very poor substitute, I'm sorry to say. So, um, some are drowning, some are burning, whatever. Can we, you know? <laughs> so the word Buddha... In Sanskrit, Pali um, means one who is awake. So it really means awakened. And it was one of the great powers of the Buddha as a teacher to see and tell the truth. And in doing so, he invited others to share in that same awakening. And this truth-telling is always here, the the story for these uh, perfections or cultivations of these beautiful qualities in us talks about hundreds of thousands of mahakalpas of time and kind of cosmic eons. Um, 
But in all of them, and there are all these stories of the many past lives of the Buddha, whether one believes it or not, it's, it's a, a beautiful kind of mythology. And over all the lifetime stories that are told, and they're, they're usually done as children's stories with animals, and once when the Buddha was born as an elephant or a tiger or so forth, um, though he did many unfortunate things, as we all do, and made many mistakes, there's one thing that he didn't do in all those lifetimes of preparing to be a Buddha, and that was he didn't lie about it. He told the truth. And that seeing and telling the truth was what kept him going. And it wasn't just for himself, but it was really that which awakened those around him. So, some of you will have heard this story um, before. John invited his mother over for dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She'd long been suspicious of a relationship between John and his roommate. This only made her more curious. And over the course of the evening, watching the two interact, she really wondered, was there more between John and the roommate that met, met the eye? Reading his mom's thoughts, John volunteered, I know what you must be thinking, but I assure you, Carrie and I are just roommates. About a week later, Carrie came to John and said, ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been unable to find that beautiful silver gravy spoon, gravy ladle. You don't suppose she took it, do you? John said, well, I doubt it, but I'll write her an email just to be sure. Dear Mom, I'm not saying you took the gravy ladle from my house or that you didn't, but the fact remains that it's missing ever since you were here. Later in the day, he received an email from his mother which read, Dear John, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie and I'm not saying that you don't. But the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the gravy ladle by now. <laughs> Love, Mom. You know. So basically, it doesn't work. That's the reality of it. And the last words of the Buddha's teachings where all things in this world are impermanent, you know, make of yourself a light in the midst of it all. Become a light. Like a lamp in dark places, it doesn't matter how long there's been darkness. When you light the lamp, it shows everything. It shows it all clearly. And part of this quality of truth-telling, truth-seeing, it's also called Dhamma-vichaya in uh, Pali, is that of curiosity, discovery, willing to really look clearly. And this is the invitation of meditation practice. It's not just to relax or to reduce stress or to balance our lives and so forth. Those are really good benefits. But it's to face the truth of life and to trust that the heart knows how to see what's true and to hold it all with compassion and understanding that that is your birthright, that it's born into you. And that this is really the game. As the sage Krishnamurti says, when the mind is quiet, still, neither judging, nor grasping, nor resisting, then it is possible to see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, 
not your efforts to be free. Not some idea of how you're going to be, but actually seeing the way things are is what liberates. And it's what brings happiness. Liberation and happiness come together. So this means telling the truth to yourself, for one thing. You know, about your fears or your longings or your love or your intentions or the things that you've forgotten. And sometimes that's hard truths that you have to tell to yourself. You know what I'm saying? No, I know you nothing about that. There's a myth, I think it's an Indian myth, actually, of a uh, family where the young boy in the family became very, very sick. He had an infection in his mouth, in this tooth um, <clears throat> that became rotten and it spread through his whole body. <clears throat> they tried different herbal medicines. It didn't work. Finally, they went to this kind of um, yogi healer in the neighborhood type um, holy man and they asked for his help and he gave some more herbs and nothing happened and finally he said well I guess the only thing that will bring your son back to life in some good way from this great disease um, is to make an act of truth that once you've tried every medicine and you've exhausted them my understanding is that an act of truth is that which heals and he sat there for a while and he said, so I will make an act of truth. And the truth that I need to tell is that I'm really not happy as a holy man and I don't want to do it anymore and I'm going to quit. And I've looked really holy, but it's not how I feel. And the minute he said it, the boy sat up and said, oh, what's happening? And there's something in this myth about the power of our telling each other what's true that pulls out what is uh, ill in us. T to speak to ourselves in that way, to speak to one another that way. So to tell the truth to ourselves, as this holy man finally did, to tell the truth to others. Martin Luther King and today is the anniversary of his I Have a Dream speech. 54 years later. My life has been threatened many times. My death will be for the liberation of my people. I still believe, oh that's Oscar Romero, got the wrong one. I still believe, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. Here's Martin. I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life and its meaning. The end of life is not to try to find pleasure and be happy. The end of life is not to try to avoid pain. The end of life is to follow a sacred path and tell the truth come what may. So to tell the truth to ourselves, to tell the truth to one another, and then, particularly in these times, to tell the truth in our society. In June 1988, the Soviet Union, the communist enterprise there, had collapsed under Gorbachev. Um, and saying that the Soviet history textbooks had taught generations of Soviet children 
lies that poisoned their minds and souls, it was announced in the government newspaper Izvestia that they had canceled final history exams for more than 53 million students. Reporting the cancellation, Izvestia said the extraordinary decision was intended to end the passing of lies from generation to generation, the guilt of which deluded one generation after another, poisoning their minds and souls, the cost being immeasurable. Today we are reaping the bitter fruits of our own moral laxity. We are paying for not telling the truth and giving silent approval to everything that now brings shame to our faces and about which we do not know how, how to answer our children honestly. Imagine that. I mean, I can hardly picture it in this country, you know, whatever news media. The New York Times and Fox News both say we have been telling lies for a long time, you know, and um, we're canceling our history exams until we can tell the truth about it. But that was a remarkable thing, you know, for a society to do even for a little while. The thing is that we know what's true somewhere in us. You are larger than all the myth, mythological kind of lies and so forth. There's something greater to our hearts and we know this. So in meditation, of course, when we bring a loving awareness to our own breath and body, to our mind and, to our mind and heart, we start to pay attention and to do so to see clearly is also to tell the truth of what we see. And mindfulness, or loving awareness, functions on several levels. On the first level, it notices the content of what's present. The pains in the body, the pleasures in the body, the needs, the gifts, the worldly winds of life, pleasure, pain, joy, sorrow, gain, loss, praise and blame, which we all experience, loss and delight. And my teacher Ajahn Chah used to give us the phrase, it's like this, sorrow is like this, longing is like this, understanding or wisdom is like this. Almost as if you could bow to each of these things and say, this is the way that it is, in this body we pay attention. An aging body is like this. Here I am, 72, and it just isn't the way it used to be. It, it ain't. And not only that, it's not going to be the way that it is now in the future. And this is the truth of it. Aging body is like this. this. To listen with the same attention to the heart the unfinished business of the heart, the grief or tears that we carry, um, the longing we have, the love that we want. I remember talking to a very well-known meditation teacher who had been um, badly mistreated by her boyfriend, um, who had these secret affairs and abandoned her or something like that. She didn't know about it, she just found out about it. She was kind of grief-stricken. We were talking. And then I looked at her and I said, so have you considered revenge? And she just started to laugh, because you know she had, actually. But it wasn't something that a meditation teacher would say, right? 
but there it was, revenge thoughts are like this. You don't have to do it, but you have to look and see what's actually going on, you know. And then you look at the body, you look at the heart, you look at the mind, and you see all the stories, most of which are reruns, you know, 95% of what you thought today were kind of recycled from yesterday and last week and so forth. So you see the kinds of stories there are in the mind, both the beneficial ones and the ones that are not so helpful. That's noticing the content. You notice the, the sounds and the sights, the experiences of the senses. You become aware of your human experience. Then the next level of mindfulness is noticing the process. That everything that you pay attention to has the nature to rise and pass away. Every thought, every feeling, every sensation, you know, every emotion, um, every vision that you have, all of it, it's here and then what happens to it? And nothing can be repeated. It appears and then in some other way. So this is the words of the Buddha. He said, suppose a man or a woman who was not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges River as they floated along, watched and carefully examined them, and doing so they would appear empty, unreal, unsubstantial. In the same way does the meditator behold the body experiences, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, states of consciousness, as they arise and pass, and examining them carefully, they appear insubstantial empty, void. That's a kind of wild thing. It all seems very solid, doesn't it? But when you quiet and look, it's a river experience. And so now mindfulness is not just looking at the content of experience, but saying, well, it's all impermanent. It's ungraspable. You can't hold it. You can't fix it. And more than that, In the, I don't know, it was about the third or fourth year of the Buddha's teaching, at least as the myth and story is told. He went to Gayasisi and gathered with a great number of those around him. And then he gave what has become known as the fire sermon. He said, Monks, nuns, my friends, everything is burning. The eye is burning, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind is burning. With what is it burning? It is burning with greed. It is burning with hatred. It is burning with ignorance. It is burning with grasping and fear. Considering, Consider this, examine this, my friends. And as you examine, you will become weary of the burning of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue. You will become weary of greed, weary of hatred, weary of ignorance, weary of fear. And when you realize this, this is the gateway to liberation. And of course, everyone who heard it was enlightened. You know how it, it was in the old days, right? Those stories. <laughs> A little tougher now, but you know. But what this points to is that as you become mindful, not only do you, does the window of tolerance grow that you can be present for the truth of your life, its joys and its sorrows, and of the world, 
but you also see the bigger picture, that it's impermanent, ungraspable. Um, and the, big, the, the laws that govern it, that the more greed and hatred and ignorance, the more suffering. And the more abandonment of greed and of hatred and ignorance, um, the greater freedom. And that's just not a story or a philosophy. It's something to examine in ourselves. So we see the content of experience, we see the process, and then the third level of mindfulness is to begin to turn the attention back to who it is that's seeing. The witnessing of it as well, the mystery. Because the content's always changing, like a movie, you know, a documentary and a war movie and a um, romantic comedy or a love story and a, you know, um, a nature movie, all the kinds of movies. But who's watching those movies? Who are you? And when you turn the attention back, as my teacher Ajahn Chah said, you become the one who knows. You become the knowing. The consciousness itself, the awareness. And that awareness was born into your body when you were, you know, in the womb. Body and consciousness came together, and it will leave when you die. You'll see. You just, you know, wow, that was an amazing life, wasn't it? What a trip, you know? <laughs> and that awareness is timeless. It is the consciousness that you really are, the loving awareness that sees the play of your life um, and can witness it all with loving awareness, with a... With a, a, a a sense of compassion or understanding um, and timelessness. And when we understand this, when we can rest in this witnessing, then we re-engage in life, in the content and the process of it, but we do it from a place of love and a place of wisdom, a place of understanding. As the Ojibwe say, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And there's a sense that we partake in this great mystery that this is who we are and not this small sense of self. And from this there grows a deeper wisdom in truth-telling. We start to see what in Zen is called the great matter. And the great matter, in case you haven't noticed, is the fact that death is stalking you. It is, and it's going to happen. All that you take yourself to be is temporary. And I think about it a lot today because I got the news today of the unexpected death of a friend who, was, who drowned. She was a mother with young kids. Um, a very loving person, a loving legacy. But it's going to happen, baby, to you and to me. And then the question is, how then shall you live? And her legacy was love. Her legacy was care. But this is the way that it is. And in the Mahabharata, I think, there's a, a passage where, uh, it might be like the Bhagavad Gita or something, I'm not sure the exact passage, but there's a dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna or some mortal and one of the gods and says, well, what are the, you know, there are so many marvelous things in this human incarnation. And yes. And the, uh, the God that, that he's speaking to says, yes, and one of the greatest marbles of all is that human beings can see 
all those around them dying and still think it won't happen to them. <laughs> well, there's a mystery for you. So this, um, from Frank Ostaseski's um, book, um, he was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, um, hospice program, the Zen hospice. Um, and he writes about a woman, um, Ethel, who was dying of brain cancer and been moved to the hospice. And one of her children, Tommy, had Down syndrome. And he was 11 or 12 years old. And he would come in and visit. And then Ethel died. And he called Peter, the father, and said, you know, do you want to come down? Ethel died this morning. Please come and bring Tommy. And the father was really concerned. You know, should I bring him? I don't know. Maybe he won't understand. So he said, I'm going to call his therapist first. You know, this is San Francisco, right? <laughs> and um, the therapist said, I don't think it's a good idea. When she was a little girl, she went to a family funeral, and she was forced to kiss her dead grandfather. And she thinks exposing a child to a dead body might be too, tra too traumatic. But he said, why don't you bring Tommy down and bring his therapist too, you know? That's <laughs> so they came, and they went in the room together, and everyone was appreh apprehensive, and he stood there and looked at his mother, kissed her on the forehead, and then turned to Frank, who'd become his friend over many visits, and said, where has that gone? What a question. And Frank answered, as I usually do, he said, I don't know, Tommy, what do you think? Tommy thought for a minute and launched into a whole story about what might have happened to his mother, including a butterfly emerging from a cocoon and some scenes from Terminator movies um, <laughs> in which the human forms morph into a new shape and things like that. Everybody relaxed. They could see Tommy was not frightened. He was instead rather curious. And when the time came for everyone to leave, Frank said, Tommy, would you like to spend a few minutes with your mother? alone with me. And since they'd built up trust, Tommy said yes, and the father agreed. And he moved to his mother's bedside and he said, he asked a question, he said, when you are dead, can you feel? I don't know if dead people can feel, Tommy, but can you feel your mom? Yes, I can, he said, but she's not moving. Yeah, when people die, they don't breathe or eat or talk anymore, I said. My simple, straightforward answer seemed to satisfy him. Then I said, Tommy, if there's anything you want to say to your mom or do now would be a really good time. And I watched as he gently touched her arm, feeling its texture and changing temperature. And after that moment, he did the sweetest, most remarkable thing. Leaning over his mother's body, he smelled her from head to toe. It reminded me of watching a white-tailed white deer fawn once on a country road. The fawn's mother had been hit by a car, and the young deer moved tenderly, sniffing her mother's body with curiosity. Tommy's movements had a similar, almost primitive feel. They were completely uncensored. Of course, Tommy would still need to grieve his mother and miss her. But at this moment, he simply was there, seeing the truth of what had happened. So this is us. This is our lot as human beings. Joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and loss, and all changing and all impermanent.
So, truth in ourself. What stories do we This is from Carlos Castaneda. He writes, you talk to yourself too much. You're not unique in that. Everyone does. We maintain our world with our inner dialogue. A man or woman of knowledge is aware that the world will change completely as soon as they stop telling those stories. To so look at ourselves. What are our beliefs, our visions, our fear, our denial, our possibility? To practice in the way that we do of mindfulness and loving awareness is to not fool ourselves. And I remember early on when I was quite young as a teacher and um, a close friend, Robert Hall, who was a psychiatrist and a kind of visionary um, who, and practitioner who later became one of the Spirit Rock teachers. Um, I remember going to talk with him at one point um, because I was, I'd started this relationship and it wasn't going well. And I was frustrated and worried and kind of trying to figure it out and things, you know, was really troublesome. And so I went for advice and I started to talk to Robert. And then he looked at me and he said, you're angry, aren't you? And I thought, moi, you know? <laughs> but I was actually, I was pissed, you know? And the minute that he said, he could see it very clearly, I didn't want to admit it, you know? Then I thought, okay, I have to deal with this. I, you know, it doesn't mean I have to do something or lash out, but I have to pay attention to the fact that this is actually what's going on in me. And so we have in us, as we start to sit, I kind of call it the Freudian layer, basically. Shame, security. Might you give me another um, pack for... Uh, yeah, see if we can do a little switch out for speaking here. this one. Oh, you got it. How's that? Okay, we'll see what happens. Got a little pause. You get to reflect and meditate. It's a good thing. Yeah. So the Freudian layer. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah. And the stories we tell about it. Um, Byron Katie, a wonderful teacher, was just here this weekend, and one of the main things that she has people do is look at the unhealthy stories they tell to themselves and then flip them around and say, what if they're not true? What if the opposite were true? Who would you be if you didn't tell that story? Because those are usually the stories of the small sense of self, the deficient self, um, the wounded self in some way, and they need to be seen truthfully. As, as Carl Jung said, one does not awaken by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And the truth is no one can do this for you. So you face this layer, but then it turns out that that's not who you are. It's just part of your history. It's not a big deal, even though you've been rather 
um, loyal to your suffering. I know you have. But it's possible to actually start to let go of it. And then, instead, inside is music and poetry and love and caring. And um, this is Ray Charles. He says, I was born with music inside me. Music is one of my parts, like my ribs, my kidney, my liver, my heart, like my blood. It was a force already within me when I arrived. And you start to pay attention to who you are, and you're so much bigger than your wounds and your stories. They're there, and they need to be tended with compassion and tenderness and so forth. But there's something else that wants to awaken in you as well. And in the retreat that I just taught, there was a woman who stood up, um, and she talked. we were talking about how to open the gifts inside yourself. And then she had this beautiful dream or a vision in her meditation. She said she was in the forest and she came upon this great kind of golden egg that was there in the middle of the forest and didn't know how to open it. And um, then along in the dream came this big hammer. (laughs) And it started to pound on the egg to try to open it. And she was just watching, kind of stunned by it. And it tried for a long time, and then it kind of sulked away disappointed because it couldn't do it. And so she thought, well, this is an interesting dream, and then, or vision. And then all of a sudden, a little brown, quite nondescript sparrow, like the most common of birds, came and landed on the golden egg. And it sat there for a while, and the egg cracked open, and all this golden light came out of the egg and it filled her being and her body. And, you know, she talked about it as a kind of gift of humility, the gift that you weren't going to do it by force and you weren't going to do it by making yourself special, that there was some kind of tenderness in this of just being present for something beautiful that will open if you're willing to listen to it. So you begin to listen to what's true in yourself, and true means, yes, there's the wounding and the Freudian layer and all of that and the, you know, the trauma that you have um, and things that have been unacknowledged and unaccepted and unredeemed in you that ask forgiveness and the stories. But then you also can begin to listen to what are the glorious things that are true about you that are so much bigger than that. So reflect for a moment, if you will. What's true in your own body that wants to be acknowledged? What's true in your own heart and mind that needs to be seen? And not just the small stories but maybe also the the great ones. Then, along with telling the truth, listening to the truth about yourself, telling the truth to yourself, there's telling the truth to others. And of course, wise speech is said to say that which is true and helpful. They need to go together not just sort of brutal honesty, but what's true and also what's helpful. So here's Adrian Rich who writes, 
an honorable human relationship, that is one in which two people have the right to use the word love, is a process delicate, violent, often terrifying. To both parties involved, a process of refining the truths they can tell to each other. You can hear the demand of a real relationship in that way. And unfortunately, um, it wasn't there so much in my previous marriage. It was one of the reasons it didn't end up working in the end. Um, This is pretty demanding, isn't it? The truths that you can tell to one another in an honorable way. And it's not about an ideal. It's about being where you are and seeing the other with a loving and open heart and saying, this is also what's true. Not an ideal. Katagiri Roshi, Zen master who came through San Francisco Zen Center and then started a big Zen community in Minneapolis, um, got sick with a terminal cancer. He had young kids, married. Um, and as he was dying, the community came in and did everything to try and take care of him in all this great loving way um, and do what they could. And finally, he called the caregivers that were coming around to take care of him a lot. And he said, I see you peering at me a lot. You want to see, all right, how is the master going to die? Right? The Zen master going to die. He was lying in bed. And then he kicked his feet and pounded his hands and said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. <laughs> he said, I've got kids. I don't want to die. That's how I'm going to die. You know, we have so many ideas about how it's supposed to be and so many ideals. And what's necessary, as W.H. Auden said, is to love your crooked neighbor with your own crooked heart. That's the poet poet's line for this, you know. So here's a story of a woman whose husband was a military contractor Um, overseas for months at a time and when he was home he was angry and difficult and distant and they had a couple of young kids and she made a close friend with this man over some months Um, and yes he was tall and handsome and he would come over quietly to the house when people weren't around and come over in the evenings and help her cook and talk with her and help with the kids and uh help her while she was doing her studies because she started a graduate program um, uh, to be a fine artist. And one night, one of the neighbors in this neighborhood, and there were other kind of military family, saw this man going into her house and then coming out in the morning and was shocked a bit by it and gossiped and told everybody And she began to be shunned by friends, like she was betraying her husband and made a terrible reputation. And as she writes, what they didn't know was that I had written to my husband and was about to end my marriage. And what they also didn't know was was that my visitor was a gay priest who was preparing to leave the priesthood to start a new life. And we told each other the truths and encourage each other to live our dreams. So we have all these ideas of somebody else and what they're doing and how they should be and so forth. 
But in fact, what's necessary is somehow to see, not just with the eyes, but to see with the heart, to hold all with compassion, their measure of sorrows and their gifts, and to realize that we don't know. You know, Charles Lamb, philosopher, said, don't introduce me to that man. I want to go on hating him, and I can't do that with someone I know. (laughs) You see how much we project on others, because they look different, or they don't fit the way we think people should be. And so to tell the truth and to see the truth is to see something bigger than our stories and our ideas, to see the secret beauty of every being, to see them, you know, their measure of sorrows and their their gifts and all. And so you could reflect honestly what's true in your relationship with others now um, and what stories are you telling that might not be true? What would it mean to see them from a place of a greater truth? And then there's the truth in our culture, our common truth. And we live in a culture of lies. Basically, half of the advertisements you see, which are on every billboard and every channel and everything, they're not really true. You know, get this and you'll be happy. You know, you'll be sexy, you'll be rich, you'll be, come on, give me a break. Buy this, consume. And and there we are, you know, after 9-11 and... um, the beginning of the Iraq war, which was such a great tragedy, um, go out and shop, our president at the time said. That's, you know, a really good American thing to do. Um, and so we have our, our government talking about peacekeeper missiles, right, and surgical strikes. I don't know if you've ever been in a war zone or around a war, but those things are all just nonsense. And the level of grief and the level of tragedy is terrible, and the truth is that we're a warlike nation. That in my 72 years of life, there's almost there's been only a handful of years that we haven't been at war with somebody. In the huge military-industrial complex, and we we you know sell billions of dollars of killing machines every year, hundreds of billions over the years to the world, and then we worry that we're not safe. There's something not quite right about this picture. And then here's New York City Teacher of the Year, John Gatto. And he said this in front of when he received his award. He said, think of the things that are killing us as a nation. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, consuming things as a religion. You know, he was a middle school teacher, and he had these kids who were looking around saying, what kind of world are we, are we supposed to be a part of? And so he told the truth. Now, after Charlottesville, the truth 
as best as I can see, or one truth anyway, is that we're still fighting the Civil War, that it hasn't been completed, and that in some way in this country, um, we're in great denial. Not only in denial that we haven't finished the Civil War, but we're in denial of the 400 years of um, slavery and oppression of African Americans, millions of African slaves that were brought here. And then, you know, after the Civil War, the lynchings and the kind of segregation apartheid, and now we have our prison industrial compact complex that's a kind of new form of slavery. Um, but it's not just that. It's also um, our origin in the genocide of the natives. There were millions of people here, living here in their own way. Um, this book, When the Great Spirit Died, The Destruction of the California Indians or Natives, 1850 to 1860, more than half of them were wiped out in one decade in raids and in killings, men, women, and children, genocide. And what you may not know is that Marin County, you don't learn it in the schools, was named after Chief Marin, a Miwok chief who was a leader, a rebel, and a legend, including resisting the colonization of his people. Go Marin, you know, in ways that you didn't even know. Um, you know, and you look, and these are all your places, the places we live, you know, um, San Rafael and Santa Rosa and, and the Point Reyes, and you start to see what actually happened on this land. What I think is that we need what South Africa had, a truth and reconciliation process for our country, where instead of denial, we actually tell the truth to one another about what's still undergirding this kind of both violence and denial and uh, all the conflict um, so that we're all on the same page. This is what happened. As in South Africa, this is what happened with apartheid. And this is the suffering of it. And however you voted and however you are, you know, look at things politically, um, you know, however thoughtful you can be about it. And I don't want to assume anyone voted or thinks in a particular way. These are just part of our history to pay attention to. And the same about immigration. I talked about sanctuary, um, the 11 million people and so forth. Um, you know, we have to pay attention to what's happening in our communities and tell the truth. This is uh, Faulkner. William Faulkner. Some things you must always be unable to bear. Injustice and outrage, dishonor and shame, no matter how young or old you are, not for kudos and not for cash, your picture in the paper, nor money in the bank, just refuse to bear them. So this is another part of standing up for what's true. And what's also true is that while there's all this conflict, there is so much goodness. You know, and I was at the demonstrations in the mission and down at Civic Center and so forth. Um, and yes, the, the cameras found in Berkeley a, a handful of people, a small handful that were acting violently. Um, but there were hundreds and thousands of people that were there peacefully loving like in Boston. I know when I was in Palestine and Israel, it was the same thing, doing peace work there. The, the groups, the former combatants for peace, the 
bereaved mothers, the, you know, all the groups that were doing cross-border work were 10, 20, 50, 100 times more people, a thousand times more people than those committing acts of violence. So this is part of what it means to tell the truth, not just the truth about the trouble, but the truth about human goodness. All those people rushing in in Texas to help, all the people who were out there, at every level, those who inspire, who remind. It's curious, says Mark Twain, that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage still rather rare. But it's not impossible. In fact, it's in us. And it's asked of us to to remember and to acknowledge. And the beautiful thing is that in the end it comes out. And you know, when you meet somebody who tells the truth, who embodies the truth, who you know is a truthful person, you relax. When you meet somebody who stands for goodness and truth, there's an inspiration. It reminds you of how you can be. There's something really beautiful in it. And the best part is that it's, it, you know it because it's in you as well. So there's all this political stuff, and the truth will come out, I promise you, in the long term. When the governments tried to suppress the truth of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, the wind told the story. It carried the truth across the European nations. The wind became a poet, a scientist, and a prophet. You can't put it aside for long. It will come out. But there's a deeper truth, finally. And that is that separation is untrue. That our notion of ourselves as being in here, some small sense of self, this is who I am, the body of fear, when we share the same air and water and the bones that have our ancestors from this earth, the same calcium and so forth that make up your bones were somebody else's bones and somebody before them. And every breath that you take, that, that good song we know, um, is really a breath that someone else breathed and that was breathed in Asia and that was breathed in Africa and that circulates around the world. It's not like there's new air. You know, we're just passing it around. So the bigger truth, Chief Seattle, what is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, men would surely die of loneliness of spirit, for what happens to the beasts happens to man. And woman, of course, too, but in his language. Um, We are connected. And the idea of your separateness is an illusion. And that's the deepest truth that happens when you sit and you let all the different layers open. Alan Watts wrote about it as the taboo against knowing who you really are. Oh, nobly born, you are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones. Remember this truth. And then hear from Kalu Rinpoche, great Tibetan Lama. You live in illusion and the appearance of things, which includes the illusion that you're somehow separate. There is a reality, but you do not know this. You forget it. And when you awaken, you will discover that you are nothing. And being nothing, 
You are everything. That is all. It's a kind of amazing statement. You are nothing. That the whole sense of who you are is really some, well, in the Diamond Sutra it says, um, like, and the Dhammapada, um, like an echo, a rainbow, a dream, a star at dawn, a rainbow, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud. Life appears in the form of you for a little while. It's not that you're not here, but it's really tentative. And you are like the wave coming out of the ocean. You could say, well, I'm my own wave and I'm independent. But you're the ocean, baby, you know, and it made your wave and you're a magnificent wave. You're a wonderful wave. You're a smart wave. You're a beautiful wave. You're a handsome wave. That's cool. But look down and see who you are really. You are part of some matrix of life. And when you remember this, then everything comes right. Then that sense of small self separateness drops away and you can tend yourself beautifully and tend that which you care for, but you live in a different way. And this is the timeless truth. As Mahatma Gandhi says, when I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. Yes, there have been murderers and tyrants, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end they always fall. Think of it. Always. And so this is the invitation to to truthfulness. Oh, nobly born, this is what you can be in your meditations as you quiet the mind. Learn to hold this human incarnation with compassion, every part of it. And then turn with care to the family of life. All of them, you know, and I do my metta, my loving kindness meditation. I also include the ones causing suffering. And the phrases that I use are, may you be free from hate. May you be free from fear. May you be free from ignorance. I can wish that for the worst dictator on the planet. I can wish that for everybody. May you be free from hate. May you be free from fear. May you be free from ignorance. A genuine well-wishing. And with a poem from Mark Nipu. Because here we are when we open, we get this mystery the 10,000 joys and sorrows all arising for your benefit. You get this amazing dance. Everything is beautiful and I am so sad. This is how the heart makes a duet of wonder and grief. The light spraying through the lace of the fern is as delicate as the fibers of memory forming their web around the knot of sorrow in this world. In the very center Under it all, what we have that no one can take away and all that we've lost face each other. It is there that I'm adrift, feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. I am so sad and everything is beautiful. So let's sit for a minute.
And so I invite you to leave with the resonance or the memory of the great heart of wisdom and compassion that is who you really are, to carry that compassion and tenderness and truth-telling and understanding to a world that is um, yours to plant beautiful seeds. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed.